John 17, and if you're using the Pew Bibles, that will be uh, page 903. John 17, Pew Bibles, page 903. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give him eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world, exist, the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you, have, you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they kept, they have kept your word. Now they know <coughs> that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. And I, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All, of, all mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world but they are in the, in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of, the, uh, one of them <clears throat> has been lost except the son of destruction, that, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word has and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the, of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them unto the world, into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe me through the world that they might all be one, just as you. You, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and I love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these uh, know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it, make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them as I is in them. This is God's word. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for, for your word. We're thankful for the love that you've given and shown to us, but also with that, that we may take your love that you've shown to us, show it to others so that in turn, as your word says, it'll grow 
and they'll come to the world, uh, may come to know you and grow through you. Father, we're just thankful for your uh, way that you've shown us and other ways to express uh, your love uh, to others. And just help us to continue to grow until your returning. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. All right. Thank you, Richard, for reading our text this morning. We're continuing here in John, including this sermon. We have six sermons left here uh, out of the Gospel of John as we're seeking to proclaim Jesus in the Gospel of John. Uh, Following that, we're going to head into uh, the book of Revelation for about three weeks. Whoa. (laughs) So, thought process there. We began in Genesis, right? And what did we see in Genesis? We saw God's proclaiming of His Son, Jesus, in Genesis. That in the beginning, the proclamation of His Son. Then we came to John. We focused on proclaiming Jesus through the Gospel of John. And that's John's purpose for us to see Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God. And then we're going to go then to Revelation. And guess what we're going to see? Jesus again, right? Jesus as the end of all things as well. So excited about that. So that's where we're headed. So six more weeks in John, or five more weeks. Today's, uh, today's one and then five more weeks and then we'll be in Revelation for a little bit. Um, a couple announcements. So one thing, uh, starting this week, Wednesday gatherings back on the schedule. So why do we do that? Well, uh, we need to grow in our knowledge and relationship with God And so we seek to study His Word together. And specifically with this study, we're looking at how to interpret the Bible. We're looking at hermeneutics. So it's really important to help us grow in our ability to study the Bible. So uh, we all need to grow in that because we all need to grow in our relationship with God. And the means by which we do that is through studying the Bible, one of the primary means. And so come out, participate with us. If you're not part of our uh, text group and you want to be, let me know. But I'm sending out uh, different drawings that go with the, the lesson. And you can guess those if you want. If you have a guess and want to tell me later, you can. But I sent out the first drawing uh, this last week that's coming up for this Wednesday. So you can ponder over that and think about what we're, what we're going to be talking about. Um, but that is coming up. So the Wednesday gathering, Wednesday, 630 uh, for an hour, we meet together. And then, uh, as it was announced, prayer and praise. Why uh, are we going to have that here in September? So we're doing it uh, uh, every four months or so uh, because prayer is foundational to the church. And the church exists to accomplish things that really aren't possible for us to accomplish. Our desire, you know, we, we preached last Sunday about the, the kingdom of of the world and the kingdom of God and how God takes us and transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His glorious Son. And uh, that's stuff we can't do, but yet that's what the church is here to see. It's here to see people transferred from one kingdom to another. But if it's not possible for us to do that, then what do we do? We need to pray that God would do what is impossible for us. Because with God, all things are possible. And that's why we pray, because we need Him to work. And so, if you haven't planned on joining us, plan on joining us, and uh, send out your request to, to Mario, but specifically if you have people that, that need to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun, put that on our evangelism prayer list so that we can be praying for them, we can be praying for you, that God would use your faithful proclamation of the gospel to do what is impossible for you to do but possible for him to do. So come and pray with us. Uh, That's coming up at the end of September. But today we're continuing our study in John. John's goal is the gospel to be proclaimed so that everyone might see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we might believe in him. So before we get into this, would you pray with me? Lord, guard our hearts with your word today so that we might keep our ways pure. We love you, so may we pursue you with wholehearted desires. This morning as we open up your word, give us eyes to see the competing desires that we might turn 
from them to you. That we might turn from them and not wander from your ways. Lord, thank you for your word that warns us of our sin, that reveals our sin, that calls us to turn from our sins. May we heed its truth, but not just turn from them, turn to your glory, the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, to gaze into your face, to see the radiance of who you are. Teach us from your word so that we might then declare your truth. Delight in your ways more than in the ways of wealth or success or power. Lord, your word is glorious. It's worth our remembering, our knowing. It's worth our undivided attention. It's worth our deepest considerations. It's worth the drawing in of our affections and desires. So may we know and walk according to your word. Lord, and not us only, I pray, but each of your churches that are gathered today, each local church that comes together to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of your word, a true church. Lord, may... May your word be heard. May your people walk according to it. Lord, we pray for Ridgewood Baptist Church uh, today as their new pastor stands in the pulpit, Lord, that you would give grace. Lord, uh, we pray as well for harvest. And Pastor Eric, as he stands in the pulpit today, give grace to your people. May they hear your word and may they walk in your way. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My main point this morning is this. We proclaim Jesus as passionate about God's glory in his own life and the lives of God's people. Passionate about God's glory, both in his own life and the lives of God's people. This amazing text here is Jesus, God the Son, prays to God the Father. And, uh, you know, I said we, we have just, including this one, six sermons left in John. I could definitely preach at least six sermons out of this one chapter. So I'm, I'm going to try to pull it in, rein it in for you guys. There's just so much here. Amazing stuff here. So we're going to try to walk through it. But as we think through this, first of all, I want to say the glory of God. What is that? We talk about that. We exist for the glory of God. That's why we're here. What is that all about? Well, um, I like how John Piper approaches defining God's glory in, in going to Isaiah 6, chapter 3, where Isaiah is standing in the temple and, and the, the raiments of God, God's clothing fills the temple. And um, as he's standing there, he's just utterly amazed and he hears the voices of the creatures of heaven, the angels of heaven, proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of her hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he links, he says, they, they cried out that he's holy, and then they said he's, the earth is full of his glory. And he links those two together in this way to make this kind of definition. The glory of God is the holiness of God put on display. It's the holiness of God so that everyone can see it. But then that makes us say, well, what is the holiness of God? Well, in the Hebrew, we find that the holiness, we often think of holiness as, as being sinless, and that is true, and God is sinless, but he's more than that. He's set apart. And in fact, as we use the word holiness to refer to God, we, see, we can see that God is separate from all things that are not God, so that you can say there is nothing like God. God. He is completely other. He is in a different class all by himself. And like all things that are rare, all things that are, that are hard to come by because there's nothing else like them, it makes him extremely valuable. 
worthy. It makes him precious and beautiful and glorious because there's nothing like him. Therefore, this idea of holiness is his separateness from all other things that makes him supremely valuable. And therefore, the glory of God is seeking to kind of help us see that separateness, that valueness of God on display for all to see. Or as Peter writes, the glory of God is a way of saying that there is objective, absolute reality to which all human admiration, wonder, awe, veneration, praise, honor, acclaim, and worship are pointing. There's something real that exists that all this stuff points to. We were made to find our deepest pleasure, he writes, in admiring what is infinitely admirable. And that is the glory of God. Seeing God as separate from us and therefore this supreme value. And thus we can come to like the chief end of man is to glorify God. To proclaim that very otherness with all its value and worthiness. That our chief end is to proclaim that glory of God and then to enjoy Him forever. Enjoy the otherness of God. So when we say here in my main point, we proclaim Jesus as passionate about the glory of God, God's glory. That's what we're saying. He is passionate about the otherness of God. The distinction of which God is to all other things and the value and worth that He is. And so that moves us to our first point. Jesus is passionate about God's glory in His own life. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 17, we find Jesus begins by praying about Himself. He prays about Himself. And as He prays, and we're going to see three different section here, sections here of, how, of what Jesus prays for. He's going to pray for Himself. And then he's going to pray for his disciples, these first disciples. But then he's going to pray for his future disciples, the church. He's going to pray for those three things. And in each of them, we're going to see that his prayer is broken up into certain things. He's going to have a foundation to what he prays for. What is the basis for why he prays for? And then you're going to see a petition. He's going to ask the Father for something. And then you're going to see that then he clarifies what the desired results are going to be that he wants to see from this petition. He proclaims what he desires to see as God fulfills this petition. And it's, and it's a great uh, instruction to us on, on how to pray. And yeah, we have to understand we're not Jesus. So there's certain things that Jesus says that we could not probably say. But then at the same time, there are certain things here as well that we can learn from. How do we approach God? We approach God with the foundations that have been set for us in His Word. These truths, these eternal truths. We don't come with our own truth. We come with His, desiring His work to happen and in turn seeing the results He desires. And so let's look at first of all here, Jesus' passion about God's glory in His own life. We see the foundation laid here in the first couple of verses, but specifically we see in verse 2 a word that's very clarifying and helping us understand that this is meant to be foundational. We read, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may be glorified since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You pick up that foundational word there, helping us understand what's the basis for it. Since. Since you have given authority to the flesh. God the Father here, Jesus says, has authorized God the Son to accomplish God's redemptive plan. He has given Him authority over all flesh. Everybody. He, Jesus has authority over everyone. 
And that authority then allows Jesus to accomplish God's redemptive plan. The plan that the God had formed in eternity past, past, the covenant of redemption, that they would redeem a people for themselves. And Jesus has fulfilled it in life. And soon to be death, resurrection, and ascension. In fact, we can look at verse 4. I have glorified you on earth. Why? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He's done it. And so what is his petition here? Based upon the foundation that God the Father has authorized the Son to carry out the redemption plan, Jesus asked the Father to glorify the Son. So we see, verse 1, glorify your Son. That's what he desires the Father to do. Or in verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me. Glorify me. Now, when I said Jesus is giving us here a helpful pattern to pray, but we can't say exactly what Jesus said. We're not meant to pray, glorify me, <laughs> right? But we can follow his pattern. We should also pray that the Father would glorify the Son, right? The Father is meant to glorify the Son, and His call is glorify the Son. Ultimately, what is Jesus looking at? He's, he's looking forward to His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. And as He looks forward to that accomplishment of the redemptive plan, speaking here in the past tense, I have accomplished it. Jesus knows that's where I'm going. It will be done. What does He say? Glorify your Son. Glorify Jesus. In his work. And what are the desired results? What do we see? We see back in verse 1 his petition Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. What is Jesus? Jesus is saying, Because you have given me authority to accomplish your redemptive work, glorify me so that the desired result, the Father receives glory. That God would get the glory in it. He says that in verse 1. He reiterates that in verse 4. I have glorified you on earth. Does that include? It includes his life, but it also includes what's coming up. His death, his resurrection, his ascension. What Jesus does brings glory to the Father. But not only is that the result... But we also see another desired result in verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, that therefore causes Jesus to pray for his own glory. What does it say? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The Father would grant eternal life to some. The reason for the necessity of the glorifying of the Son is not just so that God the Father gets the glory, but also so that some of all flesh might receive eternal life. Without Jesus being glorified through His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, His ascension into heaven, no one would be saved. The redemptive plan would not be accomplished. But in turn, if God the Father is going to glorify His Son, what's Jesus saying? So if you're going to do that through my humbling, through my death, then give me some. Give me the people you've promised me. This is my desired result, that people would be saved. I mean, Jesus is here praying before His death that in my death, people would be saved. People would receive eternal life. But not just that, reminiscent of Philippians chapter 2, where the Son humbles Himself, and therefore God highly exalted Him and gave Him a name above all names. We read in verse 5, a third desired result of Jesus. And now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. Not only 
was Jesus' request, his petition that he be glorified would result in the Father being glorified and the result of people being saved for eternal life, but also that he would be exalted. Like Paul writes, a name above all other names. That Jesus would return to the glory that he had. He would be seen in truth what he really is. The second person of the Trinity. God the Son. Sharing in the essence of the Godhead. Jesus is passionate about God's glory. This is what he lives for. This is what he came for this is what his life is about you talk about you know i want to pattern my life after jesus i want to follow after here's what jesus is about his glory so that the father receives glory so that people are brought into god's kingdom out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and that he is exalted and all of us who are his who have been brought into this kingdom what do we do we worship the king we exalt in the king as the father himself as well exalts in his son jesus is passionate about god's glory in his own life but we have to move on Verses 6 through 19, Jesus is passionate about God's glory in the lives of his disciples. Foundational, we see here, we see that he is glorified in his disciples. Notice in verse 10, I think this is central to this section. All mine are yours speaking to the father and yours are mine and i am glorified in them i am glorified what an amazing thing to say jesus would be glorified in these disciples i mean you just take a minute think about the disciples i mean they're not that you know stellar guys right like yeah what what is he talking about here well that leads us to the foundation. What is the foundation that Jesus lays here in this prayer for them being, them being someone who would bring glory to him? Well, we see, first of all, that they belong to the Father. Verses 6 and verses 9, we read in verse 6, it says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. I mean, so Jesus here is describing the fact that, that they had belonged to God from when? Eternity past. And that in eternity past, God has given them to the Son. And yet, it, it, you know, does that mean that we don't belong to the Father anymore? Well, verse 9 clarifies for us. What does it say? It says, yours they were in verse 6. In verse 9, I'm praying for them, not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are. These disciples belong to the Father. And yet, what do we read? We read throughout here over and over again, uh, five, six times, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, five, at least five times, that they were given to the Son. We see in verse 6, the people whom you gave me. Or again in verse 6, you gave them to me. Or in verse 9, those whom you have given me. Or in verse 10, we read again, all mine are yours and yours are mine. We can go back to verse 2. And what did we read about these who were given eternal life? They were all whom you have given me. So first of all, how, how can these disciples be people that, that in, through whom Jesus is glorified? Well, first of all, it's because they belong to the Father. And second, they were given to the Son. 
Not only that, they were given not based upon their own goodness. Look back at verse 6. What does it say about them? I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. When we look at the world, the way John is using the world, I think he's still using it the same way here. He's going to change it up in just a minute, but right here he's using it. They were part of this world system that was rebellious, that was against God. That is described as the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. While they belonged to God and God gave them to the Son, they were living in this world system. In which we can say, it wasn't because they were good that God does this. They were rebels. They were sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was not based upon their own goodness. But they were given to Jesus. And then, what do we read? They saw the revelation of God's name. Verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. They hear the words of God in verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. Which in turn leads to the next point. Not only did they see the revelation, not only did they hear the Word of God, but what does it say? They accepted it. They received it. But not only that, we're told they believed that, you, that the Father had sent Jesus, verse 8. And not only that, it says they kept your word in verse 6. They obeyed it. Back in verse 3 of Jesus' prayer about Himself, He describes this people again. This people whom You have given Me. What does it say? And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God. They have a knowledge of who God is. This revelation of God that's given most clearly through Jesus Christ. He manifests God's name to them. His character, who He is. His glory is shown to them. In turn, they hear His words and what do they do? They receive them. They believe them. They know that it is true. They obey them. And here we have on display in these verses, the divine sovereignty and human responsibility here on display. That God the Father, God the Father is at work. They belong to Him, yet He gives them to His Son, not based upon their goodness at all. And then in turn, in giving them to, their, to His Son, Revelation is given to them. They are able to see the character and glory of God. They are able to hear the words of God. And what do they do? Their human response to this glory is they receive it. They believe it. And they live according to it. It's their response. And through God's work and their response, Jesus is glorified in His disciples. As Jesus displays the glory of the Father, so His people are then meant to display His glory. Not their own. His. Now, we can see some problems here. Jesus displays and reveals God's glory perfectly, right? Because He's God. He does. The disciples reveal Jesus' glory imperfectly because they are redeemed sinners who came out of the world yet the glory of jesus is still revealed in them especially as they point everyone away from themselves to jesus christ and that's the mission we're going to see jesus gives to them it's Jesus' perfection. It's Jesus' otherness. It's Jesus' glory that we're pointing people to. Not to us. Not to ourselves. In verse 11, 
Verse 11, this revealing of glory in the disciples is important as Jesus is leaving the world. The glory that his disciples were able to experience in and through this, this Jesus Christ standing in front of them is now leaving, we're told. That's what it says. I'm no longer in the world. And what does he say? The disciples are remaining in this world. A world that is hostile to Jesus, hostile to his people as we saw in 15 and 16. I am no longer in the world. Chapters 15 and 16. Verse 11, those where we're at here in 17. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you. So this is the foundation by which these disciples are able to show, to display the glory of Jesus Christ. And in turn, because they are able to display this glory, Jesus asks three things of the Father. Three petitions He asks on regards to them. First of all, we see in verse 11 there, Holy Father, keep them in Your name. The idea of being in the name. Which ultimately we see back in verse 6, Jesus says he, he manifested the name of God. It's this, it's this full adherence to the character of God. It's all that that name reveals. In turn, it is His glory that is presented to us. And the idea here is that, that they would be kept from falling away from that character of God, from the ability to, to display that character of God, from the, from the passionate pursuit of, of allowing others to see that character of God, that they would not fall away from it, as Jude writes in Jude verse 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of, the, of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all times, now and forever. What's amazing about the, this writing in Jude is it's written, it's, it, it's, a, it's a plea, I believe it's based on Jesus' plea, to the only God, our Savior, you know, you'd automatically think Jesus, but it says through Jesus Christ. That while we while we primarily think of Jesus Christ as the Savior, the Father is no less of a Savior. He is part of this redemption plan. And so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is part of the redemption plan. Now, Jesus is the one who dies on the cross. And there's some errors out there floating around that others, other of the Trinity died on the cross. No, Jesus dies on the cross. And yet, all three of the Godhead are part of this salvation plan. They're all part of this redemptive plan. And here he's calling out to the Father that, that the fidelity of his people, the faithfulness of his people to this name, to this glory of God would stand, would ultimately be assured, not by their own strength, but by the strength of God, the Father. Father, keep them in your name. What's the result? What's the desired result of that request? Well, we see that in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. There's the petition which you have given me. And then we see the desired result that they may be one. The that there is important. It's telling you why. Why keep them in the name that they may be one. Even, he goes on to say, even as we are one. A unity. A unity based upon the revelation of God's glory. God is ultimately united in the pursuit of His own glory, His own name. And in turn, what happens when we're brought into this relationship with Jesus Christ to where we too are now glorifying Jesus through our lives. We are brought into that same purpose. We are united in the purpose of God to bring about His glory. That we would be one as you are one. That your name would be our pursuit in life. 
The disciples are to be united with God in that pursuit. Fidelity to God's glory to the end. And they're going to go through some difficulty. Jesus just told them, the world's going to hate you. (laughs) You're going to face all that hatred. So you need to be kept in the name. In doing so, you will be one. Not only that, we see in verse 15, his second request. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And you think, man, <laughs> that would be nice, <laughs> right? But that's, that doesn't align with his purposes. Again, that's, that's me not thinking about the glory of God. That's me thinking about my own pleasure and my own ease. Man, take me out of this world. What does he say? No, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. Not withdrawn from the world. Not even confused by the world, but rather a witness to the world. A world system that's under Satan's control, that is intent on inflicting harm to his disciples. And yet, they don't face their foes alone. Jesus Jesus doesn't just say, now the world system all by itself. He calls out the one in control, the evil one. He's referring to Satan here, the devil. That they would be kept from him. Their ultimate safety is not in how safe they can make themselves. It's not in them withdrawing from the world. Our safety isn't there either. Our safety is assured by God the Father in response to the Son's requests. His keeping even while we're in the midst of the world. And why does he leave us in the midst of the world? I'm getting ahead of myself, but I do that all the time. Because we're meant to be witnesses to the world. Like, again, we're, we're to bring the glory of God to others and allow them to see it, allow them to hear it, allow them to know it. He's glorified himself in us so that that glory might be seen. Not our glory, his. So he doesn't take us out yet. Because... For at least a time, we have a job to do. So what is the reasoning for this? What is his desired result for God keeping them from the evil one? Verse 16 reminds us, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I skipped. Oh, I'm sorry. Back to verse 13. That's where it is. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. What things? Well, all these things specifically. But specifically, we're building up to this request to keep them from the evil one. What is it all for? That they may have my joy fulfilled in them. Now, why do I link it to the petition that comes after it? Well, look at verse 14. I have given them your word. Now, he's told us that before. He gave them the word, and they received it. They believed it. They're obeying it. But where does he go here? I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just like I am not of the world. So therefore, I do not ask that you take them out, but that you keep them from the evil one. Why? Well, ultimately, because we're now, we've now been changed from one kingdom to another. We were once of a world that now we no longer are a part of. But being no longer a part of it means we have this relationship with Jesus Christ who has said here, just as I am not of the world. Being out of the world but in the world is that same place Jesus is in his incarnation. He's not of the world, but he's in the world. Now, we're, we're, we're somewhat distinct. We were pulled out of it where Jesus came from heaven to earth. But in that doing so, in that relating to us in that way, that now we are both able to be in the world, but not of this world any longer. Jesus says, this is the means by which they may have my joy fulfilled in them. Being in but not of gives us the opportunity to experience the joy of Jesus because this being in but not of 
was the joy of Jesus. Why did he come? He came to redeem a people, right? So that he might then have a people. So that a people might exist. It's helpful maybe to go to Hebrews chapter 12 where it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. The joy that was set before him. You say, well, the the eternal joy of the Father. Well, he had that. That was there from eternity past. What joy is he talking about? We'll go back up to verse 2. Since all authority has been given to the Son to give eternal life to all who have been given to him. The joy that is set before Jesus is the glorification of his name through bringing a people into himself. And in turn, what do we have the opportunity to do by being in the world but not of the world? Showing the glory of God so that people might be brought in. Oh, that my joy might be fulfilled in them. And in turn, we might bask in that joy as we bring people in to the kingdom. Not through our strength, but His, right? We talked about that. It's impossible for us, but it's possible for God. But as He uses us, as we're the means, as we're the tools, being kept from the evil ones so that we might be those ambassadors of light, Jesus fulfills His joy. And in turn, we're a part of that. When you share the gospel, friends with your family you are part of fulfilling the joy of jesus christ that his joy might be fulfilled in them third third request here is verse 17 that's where i was getting ahead of so verse 16 they're not of the world just as i am not of the world therefore sanctify them in truth so Third request here for his disciples. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As, it, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So sanctification here, this holiness, this set-apartness. So just as God is set apart and holy from all things, so he has set us apart from what? From the world. In the worldly system. That's where we once were, but now we've been taken out. We are set apart. Therefore, we are to be sanctified. So the set apartness based upon the word of God through the truth of the, or the spirit of truth. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The word as the spirit of truth works in us is meant to continually change us and set us apart from the world. But not just in like some outward little things. Like, well, we're going to practice celibacy now. What? No. Not those kind of outward things. Uh, We're going to start wearing our hair all the same. Everybody. We're going to wear the same clothes. Not in those ways. In what ways? In that we are all about, if if this passage, again, if my theme from this passage is right, the glory of God. What's it? The world's not about the glory of God. They hate it. How are we saying? We're all about it. We're set apart in that our purpose is completely different from their purpose. We don't need to be weird. We just need to be biblical. We just need to live lives for the purpose God has set us apart from the world for. Just as Jesus was set apart as a representative of God's glory to accomplish God's plan. We see that. He was set apart. Verse 5, it, it, it kind of hints at that. What does he say? Glorify me with the glory I had before. Because currently, I've been set, afar, set apart for the purpose, for this plan that you have, this redemptive purpose. So now the disciples are to be set apart from the world so that we might represent God's glory in the world and accomplish his plan. Just as Jesus 
has done. In fact, we see this in verse 18. And for their sake, I consecrated myself. Jesus said, I set myself aside for the furtherance of God's glory and the furtherance of His plan. And in turn, what are we as His disciples meant to do? We're to be sanctified. Be set apart to accomplish that plan. And that's His desired result. That they also may be sanctified in truth. Just as He set Himself aside for God's plan. So we are meant to be sanctified, set apart for His plan as well. And truly, in justification, justification, we're declared eternally holy, solely on the basis of Jesus' holiness. Yet in our day-to-day lives, we are meant to live holy, set-apart lives. In these day-to-day holiness, we are participants in it. Jesus demonstrating, I participated in the consecration of myself. Did the Father send him? Yes. But did Jesus himself consecrate himself? Yes. And so, does the, does the Father sanctify us as his people? Yes. Are we meant to then choose lives that are sanctified and set apart for his purpose? Yes. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Paul says by the mercies of God, by the the justification of God that has called you out of darkness into His kingdom, that has given you a right standing before Him, by these mercies of God to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Leads us to third point. I got to get to it. I'm running out of time. Like I said, I could preach six, six at least sermons on this. Jesus is passionate about the glo- God's glory in the lives of his future disciples, the church. And here's where we see this overflow. Just like Jesus' mission was to take God's glory and display it to the world so that he might, uh, he might further God's redemptive plan, so the same thing is true of his disciples, which in turn leads to us, which in turn leads to us going out for. F- toward future disciples as well. So here, verse 20 through verse 26, Jesus starts by saying, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. His future disciples. He's like, it's not, these prayers are not just for my first disciples, but also they go into all the future disciples. Jesus extends his petitions beyond this first disciples to the church as a whole. And so the same foundations exist here as did with the first disciples, with one change. And in uh, the first section in verses 6 through 19, Jesus was the revelation of the word of God to his first disciples. He says, I manifested the name. I gave them the word, and they received it. But when we come here to verses 20 through 26, what do we see? We see that his disciples are now the revelation of the word of God to future disciples. You see this? I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. To believe in the gospel, receive Jesus, what does it say? Through their words. Through their words. This is them taking the words of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and taking them to other people and sharing that gospel with them. And in turn, what happens? They say, those words are true, and I receive them. I receive Jesus as Savior and Lord as the revelation of the glory of God what we call evangelism this is what we see here this is what god has set his disciples apart to do and notice that the foundations are the the other foundations are the same they belong to god verse 23 i and them and you and me that they may become perfect so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me how has the father loved jesus Look at the very next verse, the very end of the next verse. Because you loved me before the foundations of the world. These future disciples belong to the Father from eternity. He has loved them like he loves his son. And he has loved his son since the foundations of the world. So guess when he loved 
his disciples from the foundations of the world. He loves them like he loves Jesus. They belong to him. But in turn, verse 24, they are given to the Son. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. They have been given to the Son. Not only that, they're not given based upon their own goodness. Notice what he says here. See, he, he actually begins to use the world, world in a different sense. He wants it to have that, that flavor of the world system, and yet, yet he's actually talking about those who come out of it. Notice what he says. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What? The world may believe? What is he trying to say? That the world system, that the kingdom of Satan all of a sudden believes? No, what he's trying to say is that these future disciples are currently part of the world, but they won't be. Because they will believe. So he's not talking about the whole world here. He's not talking about everyone in the world system. He is talking about those in the world's system that are his future disciples, that belong to him, that have been given to Jesus. Those who are in that world system will believe. That's why we, that's one of the, one of the, like, Foundational reasons why we proclaim the gospel because there's people in the kingdom of darkness that God says will be saved. We don't know who they are. God's God, though. God knows everything, right? So we proclaim the gospel to the world. But it, it could get very discouraging if we think, man, maybe I'm not convincing. Maybe I'm not saying things right. What is it all about me? No. It's not. God is the one who converts, but He uses means. He uses us proclaiming the gospel. But these verses right here tell us, tell us that there are people in the world that upon hearing the words of Jesus' disciples will believe. And that continues and continues and continues and continues that there are people in the world today who when you share the gospel will believe. I don't, I'm not pointing, saying that person or that I don't know. I'm not God. They don't belong to me. I wasn't the one who gave them to Jesus. Only the Father and the Son and the Spirit know who are His. But what does this say to us? It says that there are people we can go and share the gospel with in the world that will believe. It's not a futile effort to evangelize. It may feel like it. It may take a long time for someone to receive the Word of God. He doesn't just say it in verse 21. He says it in verse 23, that the world may know. And this is meant to parallel the first disciples who come out of the world, we're told. Uh, one of the other reasons why I would say this is, this is the way you're meant to view it is that Jesus is not contradicting Himself. In verse 9, He says, I am not praying for the world. What do you mean? The world system, the world that, the, the, those in the world system that don't belong to the Father haven't been given to Him as the Son. He also, in verse 25, says, The world does not know you when He's talking about the Father. Again, He's not contradicting Himself to say that the world would believe and the world would know. Rather, He's telling us, He's telling us that there are those in the world currently that belong to the Father and have been given to the Son. Only that, verse 20, they hear God's Word. Those who will believe in Me through their words, they hear the words of God. This is Paul saying, how will they hear without a preacher? We have to go and preach the Gospel to them. This is the means God has chosen to bring about the salvation of His people from the world. So we must take His Word and preach to them. They believe, verse 20, verse 21, verse 23. Again, divine sovereignty, human responsibility on display in these verses through God's work and their response. Jesus is glorified in His church. Verse 22, the glory that you have given Me, I have given to them. I have set them apart so that they might display Your glory.
Jesus here doesn't repeat his previous petitions because I think they're meant to be carried over. But he does repeat one of the desired results. His desire is that they would be one. Just like he said about his first disciples, so he says about future disciples, they are to be one. Again, rooted in the fidelity of the revelation of God's glory. We are about God's glory. But not only that, he adds additional desires that they may be with me where I am. Verse 24, Jesus longs for his people to experience the fullness of the glory of God in himself, and we will do so in the future. To know Jesus in all his glory. And right now we're pursuing that. As like Paul, we're counting all things as lost for the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're, we're going towards that end, but ultimately we will come to that end where we'll stand in the presence of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit in heaven and we will bask in the fullness of his glory. Huh, how amazing is that? But not only that, he goes on to say that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Verse 26. Not just the object of God's love, which we are, we're the objects of His love. Why does He love us? Why does He give the Gospel to us? Why does He give Jesus Christ to us to save us from our sin? Because we're the objects of God's love. But more than that, His people will be so transformed by knowing Him and His glory that God's own love will be their love. That's what He's saying. That the love with which you have loved me, what, may be in them. That it might be their love. The kind of love that God loves Jesus with is what Jesus is saying, Father, put in them so that we will love the way God loves. And it starts with His glory. We love His glory. And His Son, oh, we love His Son in the redemptive plan of God that He saves you. Oh, we love that. And we see people that are lost. And what do we want? We want to show them the love of God. So we're willing to sacrifice ourselves so that we might share with them the glory of God because we have the love of God in us. And that's how He loves. But even more amazing than that, although that is amazing. Look at these last four words. And I in them. Or we could take the, so he says, that the love with which you have loved me may, may be in them, and that I may be in them. Jesus desires the fulfillment of the promise that God gave that he would dwell with his people. Truly, the Father fulfilled this desire, this desire result of Jesus in the giving of His Spirit to His people. He resides with us. Glorious results. So what do we know? What should we know? Jesus is passionate about God's glory, about His own glory. He gives Himself fully to this passion and it is the only thing worth pursuing and jesus therefore desires his people to as well be passionate about god's glory and this drives his petition for protection and sanctification so that his people might know and experience and proclaim the glory of god it's all about which will lead to then more people being passionate about the glory of god and they, in turn, will be about proclaiming the glory of God, which will lead to more people being passionate about the glory of God. And they will then proclaim the glory of God, which leads to more people on and on and on and on. So what should we do today? Be passionate about the glory of God. That seems simple, right? It starts with seeing the glory of Jesus as God's true Son, as the Christ, truly God who became truly man hear it, believe it. He lived a life without sin. He died to pay the penalty of sin, our sin. So come today, receive like his first disciples. Receive, believe in it. And then as you look to Jesus Christ, follow him, keep his word. 
Accept Him as your Savior and as your Lord. And grow in the knowledge of God and His glory. Read your Bible. Well, that sounds simple too. Yeah. But it's necessary. How did they know the glory? It was manifested to them by Jesus Christ and the Word of God. In turn, how are we going to know? We have to see the face of Jesus Christ through the Word of God. We have to know Him. We have to learn about Him, obey His commandments, live sanctified lives, set apart in obedience to what He has called us to do. Make His glory our aim in our homes, at our work, at our schools, where we play. Pursue His glory according to His plan, which means then as we bask in His glory, we share it with others. It's His plan. You to experience the glory and then share that glory. It's his plan. So let's follow his plan. As we come to our communion table here in just a minute, let us remember what Jesus Christ is all about. We don't come to this table because we're good enough. We don't come to this table because we've somehow conquered sin. But Jesus has. It's His glory and honor that we come to participate in. We eat the body to declare His death is our victory. We drink of the cup. His life is our victorious life. He receives the honor and glory. Before we do that, we're going to pray and then sing uh, together. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Jesus Christ. Lord, may we look to the pattern of Jesus for how we would come to you this morning. I pray for, pray for us as individuals, our families, as a church. Keep us faithful. Keep us from the evil one and His destruction as we seek to live and work and play here in Satan's domain. Help us to be sanctified. Renew our minds according to Your Word. Willingly to follow Jesus even to the sacrifice of the ease of our own lives. Killing sin in our lives. Proclaiming Your glory. Lord, I pray that your church would be one that is unified in your truth and in your mission, that is known by the love that we have placed in us, your love, and is a witness to your glory in this hostile world. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.